you may want to have it open in front of you to follow it. It's on page 615 in the Church Bibles, which are the end of the pews, um, Psalm 115. And finding the Psalms is always very easy. Just open the Bible in the middle, um, and you're, you're pretty much there. Let's um, pray as we come to think about this. Father, we um, thank you for your words. Um, we pray that today you would help us to understand it more fully, help us to understand your commandments, and help me to speak clearly to this morning and for all of us to hear what you want to say to us by your spirit. Amen. Well, has anyone here um, heard of C.S. Lewis? Well, some of you admit to that. Um, probably some of you have read, even read his books, or some of his books. Um, what, one of the books he's most famous for is the children's book, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's um, been made into TV series and uh, films. And um, so even if you haven't read the book, like me, you've probably seen the film. Um, but apparently Netflix are going to do a series, and the um, director's the same director that did the Barbie movie. So I don't quite know how that will work out. Um, but it's, um, they're going to do a TV series on it. So it's a, it's not, it's a story that's written in 1950, but, um, or published in 1950, but it's still very much um, a story that is, captivates the imagination of people today. And you, and you may know that it's a story that um, has lots of Christian themes about it, the most famous being that um, Aslan, in a way, stands for Jesus. And in the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he allows himself to be sacrificed in order to save Edmund um, from the, the control of the White Witch. But I wonder if there's another Christian theme in there. And that's that there's a sense in which there's um, an occupation of the land of Narnia. Um, the White Witch is the one who's come with her forces and has taken control of the land and called herself the Queen of Narnia, and under her rule, winter comes in, and winter covers the lands. You may know that the stories of Narnia are set, actually, in the Second World War in the 1940s, and the reason the children are in this strange house in the countryside is because they've been evacuated from London during the Blitz. And the, the books were written soon after the Second World War. And I wonder if, in C.S. Lewis's mind, he's thinking partly about the occupation that had happened in Western Europe during the war, when the Nazis had taken over, well, all of Europe pretty much, the Nazis had taken over Europe, where they were oppressive. A kind of winter had fallen over Europe. And in Europe at the time, there were resistance movements, weren't there? People that tried to stand against what the Nazis were doing and their evil and particularly people that tried to hide away or smuggle away Jews so that they wouldn't be captured and sent to the concentration camps. I wonder if in the story of Narnia that C.S. Lewis is um, echoing that, where um, the fawn, the fawn, I think, I can't remember his name now, Tom Tomas or Thomas, um, tries to um, rescue Lucy and, and the beavers um, rescue the other children a kind of resistance against the authority and the power of the White Queen. And there is a sense in which I think this echoes the Christian theme that in a sense our world is occupied. The world was created good. The world um, was made perfect by God. And there's a sense in which the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And yet Jesus also talks about the prince of this world, referring to Satan. 
It's a sense in which evil has come and by drawing people away from following the God who made them has brought evil into the world, has occupied the world that rightly belongs to God, has occupied our hearts that rightly belong to God so that evil has come in. And we're called to a resistance against that, to a holy resistance. As those that um, are looking to Jesus, the one who died on the cross in order to defeat Satan, to bring about a transformation in the world, a transformation we're still waiting for the fullness to come, but we're called to resist the evil that is already in the world. And in 1 Peter, um, it puts it like this. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, i.e., don't live as others live now or as you used to live before you came to know Christ. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. We're called in some ways to be different to the world around us. Not different in wearing different clothes or sandals on your feet and so on. I was wearing sandals yesterday because it was so hot and someone came into St. George's where I was and said, oh, I see you're wearing sandals. Is that what Jesus would have worn? No. <laughs> but we're called to be different in the way we live our lives, in the attitudes of our hearts, in what we allow to drive us. And last week I talked about the, the, the fact that we importantly need to see the Ten Commandments as being rooted in the story of God's saving work for us. They're not just abstract laws that said God says, do this or else. He saved us in Jesus Christ. And so he calls us to live his ways. But there are ways that are a holy resistance that are different to the world around. And I think the Ten Commandments help us to show us how we are to resist the evil of the world. And one of those key things is to resist idolatry. In the world that um, God had rescued Israel from Egypt in, it was a world full of idols. Everywhere you went, there would have been statues that people worshipped in, big statues in temples, small statues in people's houses. Um, those are some Egyptian gods there, or two Egyptian gods um, flanking the Pharaoh that would have been up there. And, um, and God says to Israel, having brought them out of slaving, slavery, slaves in Egypt, he says to them, you must not have any idols. You must not even make an image of me and worship it. And that was radically different to the ways of the nations around about. So much so that in our psalm it says, um, sorry, come to that in a minute. So much so in our psalm, it says in verse 2, um, why do the nations say, where is your God? You see, they were looking at Israel and they're looking at the houses and their temple and saying, but there's no statue of a God there. We, we don't know what your God looks like. Why haven't you got an idol to worship? And the response of the Israelites is to say, well, our God is in heaven. Our God is in heaven. You see, the problem with your God is, or the gods that you worship, is that they're simply made by human beings. They're crafted by humans. They're made of wood and gold and silver and all this stuff. And you look at them and they've got eyes, but 
I can't see anything. They've got ears, but they can't hear anything. They've got mouths, but they can't say anything, and noses, but can't smell anything, and hands, but can't feel anything, and feet, and they can't walk. They're just inanimate objects. And yet you bow down and worship them. Now, many commentators say, well, you know, the psalmist is being a bit unfair here because the people of those days didn't really think that the, the statutes were the gods. They thought they, the statutes in some way represented gods. But the statues that represent the gods sort of try and give an image of the god that represents the, the ideology, the imagination of human beings that have made up these gods. They're just human ideas, human constructs. Often created in order to control and um, enslave the people around them. So, for example, in Egypt, Pharaoh was seen as being the representative of all the gods and almost a god himself. So that the worship of the other gods was a way of helping to control the people and keep him in power. They just met, the ideology behind the statues is as much, as much of a man-made construct as the statues themselves. And the psalmist says, look, you worship these human-made, these handcrafted things, but you end up becoming like them. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. The word for like there actually echoes back to Genesis 1. You know, in Genesis 1, when God creates the world, he creates mankind. He says, um, I'll make them in my image. In the image of God, I'll make them in my likeness. He says, I'll make them. The same word. We're created to be in the likeness of the God of the universe. And yet when we replace the God of the universe with idols, human-made constructs, then we become like them, rather than like God. We become dehumanized. We lose what we're meant to be. And what do we lose exactly? Let's have a look at three things I think this psalm points to. First of all, we lose, oh, give me away, we lose a connection with heaven. It says there in Psalm 3, verse 3 of the psalm, our God is in heaven he does whatever pleases him. If, if your focus of your life, if the driving force of your life is what's on earth, is all caught up in what's going on around you, is a man-made ideology or a man-made construct, then you're missing out on what is beyond humanity, beyond this world. And in a way, there's a sense in which the forces of this world we can feel so oppressive and so enslaving and we, can't, we can feel that when life goes wrong there's nothing we can do about it. But if we believe in something beyond this world, beyond this life, then it gives us something to look to beyond that can do something about it. To God who is the ultimate power, who is ultimately sovereign. And we can trust that even though things are going wrong in this world for us at this moment, he is still in control the one who loves us so much that he rescued Israel from Egypt, that he sent his son to die for us on the cross. By focusing on man-made ideologies, man-made constructs, we lose a sense of heaven. And we also lose a sense of eternity. Because human constructs are very much focused on the now or on the immediate. Those gods of ancient Egypt 
although we can dig them out of the sand and see them painted on the walls of the, temp the temples that are still around, no one really believes in them anymore. Well, probably a few wacky people do, but on the whole, no one does. No one believes in the gods of Norse myth, apart from a few wacky people. Those gods are forgotten. They need people to believe in them because they're human constructs. And the ideologies of our world that come and go need people to believe in them because they're just human constructs. But God of the Bible is eternal. He's the creator of the universe. He's the one that will be there at the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he showed that by rising Jesus from the dead. That not even death will have any control over him. When we lose contact with him and focus on earthly things, instead we lose that sense of eternity. And ultimately, we lose that sense of life. You see, at the end it says, if we who extol the Lord both now and forevermore, it's got that sense of eternity in the psalm. And yet before that it says, it is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. In other words, if you're not focused on praising the God who gives us life, then you become as good as dead. If you worship things that are inanimate, man-made objects that can't speak, can't smell, can't see, you become like them. You become just a sense of something that's material and you lose that spiritual connection. You lose life itself. In a sense now, but ultimately for eternity as well. We talk about the problem of idolatry, and we may think that is a problem of the ancient world, but actually it's a problem of our world. Our world doesn't have little statutes of gods that it worships. But we are a world that is basically kicks the god of the universe out of the picture. That has come to focus on material things, the things of here and now, the things of human ideology, the things of human thinking. We think we can do without God, we can do without heaven, we can do without eternity. And it's soul-destroying. Stefani Rupert, um, if you read one of the blogs I sent out last week, she, she's the writer of one of those. Um, she's an academic and a philosopher. And, and for many years she was an atheist. She didn't believe that God existed at all. And yet she sensed that spirituality was important. There's a need to, to do spiritual things, to, to connect in some sort of way. And so she studied it, and she um, wrote a book about how to do spirituality without believing in God. But even having wrote this in the book, she came to realize that it doesn't work. You need to connect beyond this world, beyond human ideologies, beyond human constructs. You can only truly find life by connecting with the God who is in heaven, the God who is eternal. We need to break free from the imminence, immediate, material perspective of our worlds and connect afresh with the God who is above all and beyond all and in control of all and forevermore. And so she became a Christian. She rejected ideology. Sorry, idolatry. 
And so we're called to that same holy resistance. We're called to resist the pressure of the world around us to, to make us forget about God and focus on the material. Um, and so we need to think about what are the gods um, that are around. We need to be like the Thessalonians. That it says they told, were told how, to t- how they turned from idols to serve the true and living God. So what are the idols of our age? Well, um, depending on time, I've got four. First one's this, maybe the most obvious one in a way. Wealth, material possessions. The New Testament makes this clear, doesn't it? If you go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, um, if you're a Christian, you need to put to death certain things. Again, that's that's kind of holy resistance. It talks about various things, but one of the things it says is greed. Um, It's not about eating too much cake, but having too much stuff. And it says, put to death greed, which is idolatry. It links it to idolatry directly. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, when he's talking, he says, um, you cannot love both God and money. They're, they're two contradictory things. If, if you let money or wealth or running after material things become the driving force of your life, if that's what you really want out of life, if that's what you think is really important, then God will disappear. It's become an idol. To replace God in your life. And don't we live in a world where, where wealth has replaced God? As I was walking from St. George's Church this morning to here, um, someone drove up in a car with um, loads of wood stacked in it, and someone else was outside um, doing some woodwork. I don't know if the two are connected or separate. But I mean, I'm more likely these days to see people at B&Q on Sundays, or doing, doing, doing up their houses, making their material possessions better. And focusing on God. We live in a world where materiality, having a nice home, having a nice car, having a nice phone, whatever it is, a comfier sofa, bigger TV. Those are the things we're told will make us happy. Those are the things we're told are important. Those are the things that everyone else seems to want and so we seem to want. And yet, it's soul-destroying. And your life becomes just about material stuff without any link to the God of heaven, the God of life. What life is there in that? What hope is in there in that? What does it give you really? And yet advert after advert subtly tell us, get more stuff, buy this service, and you'll be happier. And we allow that message to seep into our bones, that story to take over our lives and create an idol or idols within us. We need to resist that pressure. We need to resist the way that others in the world follow and run after wealth and make God the one we love and the one we follow. about fame. Do you remember, um, those of you old enough, in the 70s, um, there's that um, TV program, Fame! I want to live forever. Do you me- some of you remember that? Um, Anna won't. <laughs> um, and actually, you know, as our children were growing up, we watched things like um, 
X Factor and all this sort of thing. And it's all about creating people, creating fame, isn't it? Um, these days, one of the big things for fame is, is social media. The, um, those social media influencers, have you heard of those? Maybe you maybe know about the fame in, in the 70s, but don't know about that. But, but these days, it's, um, people on social media can, can almost overnight become famous. They can almost overnight become the person everyone wants to watch. I was reading in the news yesterday that there's someone who um, dances on the tube and takes videos of herself and puts it on TikTok. Um, and apparently, within three or four weeks, she became the most watched person in the world or something. Um, and so chil children and young people today see this and think, well, if only I could become famous like that, if only I could have this sort of social media presence, then, then that'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? Wouldn't think about the influence, the power, the, the money that would come flooding to me. Um, and actually, that's the, what, the sort of thing that young people are watching today is that the, the social media influences. I don't watch the BBC or TV or stuff. And it can be a dream that you want to be like that. And, and apparently there was a survey last year amongst UK um, youngsters that said, um, asked them what they wanted to be when they grew up, basically. And one in five said a social influencer. Because it sort of holds out so much promise. They want that fame. They may be sitting here thinking, well, I'm not worried about fame. You know, my, my dreams of becoming a pop star of, or a world-class football player have long gone. But actually... Isn't social media itself set up to sort of feed us into wanting fame in a, in a small, minor sense? You know, you, you, you put up there your, your holiday snap or your, your nice, beautiful shot of your, your face, and possibly with a bit of extra sort of technical work to make it look better. And, and you hope that people will like it. You hope that people will see it. And social media is almost designed, isn't it? Sometimes you sort of put things up. I hardly ever do it, but even when I do, I, I feel this, you know, you put something up and you're hoping that people can sort of like it or make nice comments. That's not fame on the worldwide scale, but there's a sense of wanting to be famous. That we're looking for um, affirmation from the social media around us. Wanting to have likes, wanting to be recognized and noticed. It can become a driver for us. And, and in a sense, it keeps us looking at our phones. I mean, we keep looking back at the phone. Uh, are there more likes of what other people are putting? How do I compare with them? We keep going back to social media again and again. And, and so we can spend hours sometimes just looking at our phones. They can quite easily become the, the idol in our pocket. And it's having a devastating effect on young people. During my sabbatical, I did some reading about... Um, the rise in mental health problems amongst young people in the West. Uh, and the reason that people think it's probably most likely to be causing it, and it's quite dramatic over the last 10, 10 years or so. The thing that people think is most likely to be causing it is this addiction to social media on the phones by young people and young girls in particular. And it's creating an epidemic of mental health problems because their lives and their focus are driven on that, staying up all night looking at their phones, um, wanting to be liked, and being devastated when any kind of bullying happens on it. Become an idol of our age, but we're called as Christians to resist that. We're not to look for affirmation from likes on social media, we're look, to look to the gods who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And we know we're affirmed by him. How much greater is that? How much more life-affirming is that?
I could talk about other things. I won't. I, heart desire, um, success, and so on. But, and there are lots of idols around. Anything that might be a good thing in, in of itself, but might take over our hearts. And it's quite easy to look at other people. You know, might be thinking, oh, well, those young people, they're so caught up with it. It's easy to look at other people and see what might be the idols for them, but look at your own hearts. If you're serious about living the holy resistance that God calls us to, what in your heart is replacing God? What is driving your life? What human construct has taken over your thinking? So that you're disconnected from the God of heaven, the God of eternity, the God of life. Because one day, the evil of our world will be kicked out. One day, just as in Narnia, when the winter ended, and in Europe in the 1940s when the Nazis were defeated, the evil oppression will come to a complete and utter end. And then our holy resistance now will shine before God like a star. We'll be vindicated as we follow him, continuing to praise him forevermore. As it says at the end of the psalm, it is we who will extol the Lord both now and forevermore. Amen.